Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. You will remember from last week that our focus is on discipleship and on growing as disciples. Integral to that reality are two things. There are more, as I mentioned last week, but two things that are part of this series. One is learning more clearly how to read this book, and the other is to do so in community. So we have that opportunity in this series. Week by week on Sabbath morning, our focus is going to be how can we read Scripture in a way that we can understand. But in small group communities, you will do that in a communal setting. Now, we announced a pilot project last week that small groups would be forming around the content of this particular series. It's a pilot project, so there are limited spaces they quickly filled up last week. We've opened about four more groups with different emphases and different times. You can find them on our website. Go to our website. These will quickly fill. So we're going to hit a limit where we can't go further in a pilot project, but there will be more to come. So we invite you to be part of that. The stand-up comic, Nate Bergazzi, tells the story of being invited to come and speak for a business event in Florida. Turned out that the man, the owner of the business, whatever it was that he was to the business, who invited him was, was a very nice person, was a very generous person. And so when all the employees of this place came together, he was raffling cars, he was giving away iPads and televisions. Everybody was very excited about what was happening. And then partway through, the man says, okay, now I've got another great surprise for you. And he introduced Nate Bergazzi, who came out at that time. Bergazzi says, they had no idea who I was. They looked at me like, who are you? I mean, you're that important, I could probably have you over to my house. They were not impressed. But he said, I, I, I went into my routine. I went into my material. And as I'm doing my material, nobody's laughing. Nobody's tracking with me. And he says, you know, you ever seen somebody dying up front? Well, that's what he was going through. He said, one of my best stories, funniest stories, I told it three times because I was like, I don't think you understood that. So he told it again and again. Nobody laughed. He finally mercifully finished. And went backstage, and there he encountered the guy who invited him. He just said to him, I, I'm really sorry. I, I used to be a comedian, but I apparently yeah, I'm, guess I'm not anymore. And the guy's, no, no, no. It's okay. It's not your fault. Not my fault. How could that not be my fault? It clearly didn't work. And the guy said, well, see, I, I realized partway through while you were up there that most of the people that I employ don't speak English. And he's like, what? <laughs> they don't speak? And you invited a stand-up comic in English? That would have helped to know that. I couldn't have done anything about it, but it would at least help to know. Don't speak the language. Wow. Do you know that what Bergazzi experienced is what a lot of us experience when we come to this book? We come to this book... We want to understand it. We want to connect with it. But at times, it feels like it's speaking a different language. In other words, what we're aware of, and this is one of the key words today, and one of the key concepts I would suggest 
to understand how to deal with in order to truly read the Bible in a way that makes sense. The distance that exists between the world of the text and the world of today's reader. The distance. Now you say, well, what, what, what creates that distance? What are you talking about? Well, in a word, what creates the distance is difference. In the many, in fact, the myriad ways in which there is a difference between the world of the text and my world, all of those differences increase the distance. Now, the reason that's an issue is simply this. There is a relationship between distance and impact. A very clear relationship between distance and impact. And here's how it goes. When distance increases, impact decreases. That's Bergazzi. The distance between what he was saying, I mean, honestly, even if they had spoken it reasonably well, those of you who speak at least one other language, a second language, how well does it go when you translate jokes? How well does it go when you translate humor? The hardest thing in the world to translate. You're dying laughing, and they're saying, what happened, what happened? And you tell them, and they sit there and kind of look at you, and you say, well, you, you had to be there. You know, somehow that didn't. There's a distance between so many realities. So when the distance increases, the impact decreases. However, when the distance diminishes, the impact grows. The shorter the distance the greater the impact. So we could think of any number of illustrations about that. Think about this one. Let's suppose that you open your phone to the news feed and the headline says that a jet, an Aeroflot jet, crashed when it landed in Moscow. There have been fatalities, but details are emerging. Now, when you read that, you feel a pang of, of sadness, of compassion, a horrible thing and then you go to the next news story that's a long way from here so it's a different world and so the distance results in a very low impact but let's say you open look at the news feed and it says an American Airlines jet crashed on landing at LaGuardia Airport and you say whoa, whoa, whoa. I just traveled through there two weeks ago and I was on American and you now read the article what flight number was that? And you're checking your flight. Oh, my goodness. The, the, the distance has just diminished, and the impact has increased. Or you're standing at the check-in counter, American Airlines in Ontario. You've just checked in your bag. You're getting your boarding passes, and you hear, everybody hears a boom that sounds like a bomb. What happened? There's rushing in every direction. And over a few minutes, finally the word comes through. American Airlines, the very aircraft on which you were going to fly out on landing, exploded. And the agent says to you, don't worry, we have another piece of equipment coming. It's going to take, and you that bag right there, that's my bag. Get, give me that bag. Get, no, no, I don't care if I don't get a refund. Give me that bag. I am not going on this flight today, tomorrow, next week, or probably next month. Because the distance was so close that the impact was very high. 
Such is true also in the world of Scripture. So the question naturally is, okay, what, is, what are the differences that create the distance between our worlds? So let's just list a few of them. We actually could probably fill both of these boards up with di differences that create distance, but we'll just do a few. So let's start with this one, the one that Bergazzi wrestled with, language. Scripture is written in Hebrew and Greek, some in Aramaic. It's in a different language. That's the first challenge. Do you know that countless people have died over the centuries so that we can have this book in our own language? And that is a gift beyond compare. Having said that, a distance remains. That's why scholars learn the original languages to be able to read it in those languages. In English, for example, let's take the word love. We can say, well, you know, I love cold, clear nights and hot, bubbling jacuzzis. I love Mexican food. I love my dog. I love my wife. I love God. I love the Dallas Cowboys. And at some point along the way there, you say, whoa, 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 you may want to, you're using the same word for all those things. You may want to define what you mean by that. Because we use that same word to describe all kinds of attachments. The Greek language, as one example, has at least four words that can be translated in English as love. Storge, philos, agape, and eros. All can be translated as love. And so in the text, from the word itself, you immediately know what you're dealing with. One simple example. Language can create a distance. What about culture? We know that even in the contemporary world. If you've done any traveling in another country and you don't speak the language and you don't know the history and you don't know the cultural expectations and you're not quite sure about the food, you feel a great distance between yourself and that host culture. The same is true with the cultures of Scripture. But what about something as simple as geography? It too can create Distance. We'll see that more in our text in a few moments. But geography. For those who travel to, to the lands of the Bible, one of the first things that you realize is being here, seeing the relationships of one place to another, seeing the sense of scale, all of that leaves you with the, with the understanding, I'll never read this book the same again. It has that kind of an impact that geography does. What about things like beliefs, beliefs, uh, superstitions, those kinds of things? A profound impact in understanding those in that world and how they differ from the ones in our world. Take one example. I've shared it before. How they understood what was under the water in large bodies of water. We have a sense of what's down there. We have underwater scuba diving equipment, underwater cameras. We pretty much map the floor of the ocean. We have a pretty good sense of what's down there. They did not. Beliefs and superstitions has ridden, risen up because of that, that in the ancient world, what they called the deep was understood to be the abode of darkness, the place of the great sea dragons, the place of chaos, the place of evil. Understanding that will change how you read Scripture. If you enter into that part of the world, imagine how different it is then to read the story of Jesus walking on the water. It's not just a Messiah with a power over nature. 
It harkens back to Genesis. Your heel will crush the serpent's head, and you see it happening. But that's because you understand something about the beliefs of that world. What about roles, husband-wife roles, male-female roles, parent-child roles, all the other roles that go into the society? Understanding the differences can help misunderstanding them creates a great difference. I'll mention one last one. What about politics? Politics is a key one because we live in a democracy. In the New Testament, they lived in an empire, two very different kinds of government. So understanding what that means has an influence on how I read Peter and Paul when they're talking about my relationship to government. Or what even about the terminology, the metaphor that is used to describe God's world. It's the kingdom of God. We don't live in a kingdom. What does that mean? All of these things can create distance between my world and the world of the text, making it more difficult to understand. So, an illustration of that. There went the flowers. An illustration of that. I want to invite Vanessa. Vanessa Gil Diaz has agreed to help me here today. I want to invite Vanessa to come up. And as she comes up, I want you to picture something in your minds. I want you to picture the city of ancient Ephesus. Uh, I love Ephesus, both the book of Ephesians, but also the excavated remains of that ancient city. So, Vanessa, picture Vanessa as a citizen of ancient Ephesus. So, she's standing in the Agora. The Agora is the marketplace. So, Vanessa, you're there that day. The marketplace is just, just a cacophony of sound. There are merchants selling their wares. There are sheep bleeding, cows mooing. There are people yelling, screaming at each other. Everything is active when suddenly where you're standing, a piece of paper comes floating down out of the sky, and you reach out and grab it. Now, suspend belief for a moment. Just assume time travel is possible for a moment, and assume even though she's a citizen of ancient Ephesus, she can read English. Okay? So... Vanessa is going to read the note that came flittering down from the sky. So, Vanessa, what does the note say? Hi, I ran into the corner market. I was going to text you, but my phone battery died. Did you get the email from your sweet mate at the office? He wants to fly with you to the convention at Caesar's Palace next week. You need to call him ASAP. See you at the gym tonight. Kisses your sugar plum. <laughs> Vanessa, did you understand that note? Yes. Didn't take you long, did it? We've raised bright kids here in Loma Linda. <laughs> no, and all of you understood it. It's simple, it's clear. You understand it as you read it. However, Vanessa's a citizen of ancient Ephesus. So there's a bit of a problem here. So, Vanessa, I'll trade places with you here because I want to write on this board. I want to ask you, Vanessa, put yourself in, in the mindset. Actually, I have room over here. We'll trade back. Sorry. Put yourself in the mindset of a citizen of ancient Ephesus 
And as you look at that note, give me some words you think they might have a hard time understanding. And I'll write them on the board. What do you think they are? Honey. Honey. Okay. Very good. So right out of the starting gate, we're already in beehives and all of that kind of stuff. So that's the first one that might be a little different. Okay, what else? Text. Text. Okay, so we've moved now from the beehives into the synagogues and the Torahs and the scrolls and the texts that are found in the scrolls, right? Maybe. What's another one? Phone battery. Phone and battery. Have mercy. Now we're getting into terrain about which you and your fellow citizens have no idea. Phone and battery. Any other? Email. Email. We'll add that. That'll become the third one about which we have no idea what that means. What else? Sweet mate. Sweet mate. Sweet mate. Okay, so this one is something somewhat indelicate, but sweet mate, okay, so, all right. What else? Office. Office. Well, yeah, probably not something we would know either. Anything else? Fly with you. Fly with you. Fly with you. Okay, now are we talking about flies or what? Okay, not sure. Caesar's Palace. Finally, one that we know. <laughs> Absolutely. That one we've got clear. So we're going to Rome and we're going to see what happens at Caesar's Palace. Finally, we've got something we understand. What else? Call him. Call him. Okay, that probably just means to shout loud or something like that. Okay, what else? ASAP. A-S-A-P. No idea. Anything else? Gym. Okay, so we've heard of gymnasiums, and may, that has kind of a sound like that, but, yeah, I'm not sure about those plays, but fine. Anything else? Sugar plum. Sugar plum. All right. So we started at the beehives, and we end in the orchards. Very good. Now, Vanessa has pointed out to us here an entire list of terms which you and I know immediately. We understand it makes total sense to us about which Vanessa and her fellow citizens in ancient Ephesus would have no idea. Thank you, Vanessa, very much. I appreciate your help. Yes, thank Vanessa. It is not beyond the realm of possibility that in ancient Ephesus in years to come, next year, the next decade, the next century, they would have academic programs at the University of Ephesus trying to study all this. There would be people writing doctoral degrees on what is text and what is honey and what in the world is sugar plum, trying to defend their premises, trying to explain this one simple note that you and I understood just like that. Why? Because of the distance that exists between the two worlds. Now, with that in mind, here's the simple principle. I want to suggest to you that biblical scholarship, this is my suggestion. You may have scholars who disagree with me and they know more than I do. But my suggestion is that all of biblical scholarship, whether it is the Ph.D. student, trying to write on an obscure part of a passage, or it is a Loma Linda University Church member sitting down to read his or her Bible. 
that all of biblical scholarship includes as a central act the process of collapsing the distance between the two worlds. Collapsing the distance. Entering more and more into the world of the text to understand its languages, cultures, geographies, beliefs, its role, its politics, and many other things, so that when I have those truly and fully in mind, and I now step into the text, the meaning will be much more natural. You with me so far? Okay, we're going to go to a text, Luke chapter 5. Now, for those of you who are taking the assignment seriously in this series, you've been reading the Gospel of Luke. Those of you who are really proactive, you're reading the entire gospel each week throughout the series. You're immersing yourself in the thought and the language of Luke. For those of you who might be a little bit more busy and a little bit more timid, a couple of chapters a week and you'll get all the way through. So today we're in Luke 5. I want to read one text here, one uh, story that gives us a bit of an insight into what we're talking about here. Luke 5, beginning with verse 17, says... One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, Take up your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. So, what if a first part of reading a text is trying to collapse the distance, trying to step into that world? Maybe the two most important pieces you need to have in your hand, obviously, is the Word, Scripture. But maybe one of the other very important tools is a Bible dictionary. A Bible dictionary. Now, you'll also use a Bible commentary, but today we're going to primarily stay, not exclusively, but primarily stay with the Bible dictionary. Okay? So you have that in your hand. You say, what Bible dictionary? The SDA Bible dictionary, Seventh-day Adventist Bible dictionary is a good dictionary. It's a bit dated, but it's a very good dictionary. And we'll have some other resources online that will help if you're interested. You don't need to spend a lot of money. You can spend hundreds of dollars on Bible dictionaries, multi-volume series. Unless you're getting a doctoral degree, you don't need that. Fairly simple. One will help. So you've got your Bible here, Bible dictionary there, and maybe a commentary or two sitting over here. And you begin reading. And it says, one day as Jesus was teaching, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, some versions say the scribes. So the Pharisees and scribes or the Pharisees and teachers of the law were there. So you take your Bible dictionary and you look up Pharisee. 
Don't just assume, I know what a Pharisee is. Look it up. Because in our world, Pharisee isn't a good term. You don't want people saying to you, you're such a Pharisee. Don't be so Pharisaical. That means something's wrong, something's not good. But when you open the Bible dictionary and read about Pharisees, you realize these were the good people, the upstanding, the moral people, the religious leaders. They were concerned to maintain the orthodoxy of the Mosaic laws, to maintain the purity of what people were doing before God. They were the upstanding members of society. That's the Pharisees. So replace our negative with that positive. Whatever other feelings you may have, deal with that. And then the scribes are the teachers of the law. Probably more localized, maybe out of synagogues. They would teach the law of Moses, help people answer questions. Both of these are present where Jesus is teaching. That means these people are interested to know that what's happening here is orthodox. You with me? Now, I'm going to say something more, but I want to read the next part of it first. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. So Jesus is teaching in Galilee, so no great surprise that there are people there from all over Galilee that are listening to him. That's not a surprise. But it says they were there from Judea and Jerusalem. So you take your Bible dictionary and you look in the back and you look at the maps to get a sense of scale. Where is Judea? Where is Jerusalem? Where is Galilee? And when you do so and you get to looking at the scale, you realize that Judea and Jerusalem, depending on certain pieces of which ones you're talking about, is about 100 miles from Galilee. 100 miles. In other words, the Pharisees who are located primarily in Judea and especially in Jerusalem have walked essentially from San Bernardino to San Diego to be here today. This isn't a group of people who after Sabbath lunch said, let's go on a walk around the block. They are clearly here with a purpose and with a mission. Now, Think of what you might think if you walk in here today and you see sitting over here on the front pew in that section, you see wise men from the east. <clears throat> so you see sitting over there people from the GC, people from the NAD, second row people from the union, people from the conference, and you lean over and say to your spouse, What did Randy do? <laughs> What's wrong? What are they doing here? Something is clearly out of kilter because they would come when there is a problem. This is what you have in this setting. So you have people who have come from a very long way to be here and to see what happens. Now, I'm just going to move through a few pieces of the text. So while this is happening, four men come bringing a man on a mat, can't get him in, tear the roof off the place, and suddenly this suffering man is dangling in front of Jesus. So it says he's a paralytic. That brings us face to face with the fact that he's suffering. So one of the things you want to do in your Bible dictionary, or this time you might use a commentary, is how did they understand suffering? 
How did the people in that world understand when somebody was paralyzed? And the answer you'll get is very simple. They understood that if you had committed a great sin, that in the here and now you would often be punished by God with great suffering. This was the cause. This was the result. Sin, suffering. So when the people in that world saw this man who was suffering, they would have likely said a couple of things in their mind. One, they would have said, I don't know what he did, but he's getting what he deserves. Number one. And number two, I'm not giving up my place here to that guy. You kidding me? No way. And you just lock arms and don't let him in. Against that backdrop, suddenly, when he's dangling in the air, Jesus says, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Now, we're going to look at the Pharisees and the scribes. Because that is an incredible claim to make. Even in our world, that would be a disturbing claim to make. And they immediately say, well, we'll tell you what we think about that claim. That claim, plainly and simply, is blasphemy. And the Mosaic Law was clear that blasphemy was a capital offense punishable by stoning, though at this time the Roman Empire held that in check. But it's an egregious sin. You find that by looking it up in your Bible dictionary, blasphemy. You read it, so you know that's happening. So the question is, how can him, how can he, a mere man, make that claim? And you keep reading. And you discover something very powerful. Jesus takes them at their word. It is as though he says to them, I'll meet you on the basis of your theology, not mine. I'll meet you on the basis of your theology. You say that sin causes suffering further and you can find this in the bible commentary or two on your desk furthermore you say that if the suffering is to be dealt with the sin first has to be removed or forgiven furthermore you also say we have rabbinic sayings that say this you say that there is no sick man healed of his sickness until all of his sins have been forgiven. You're finding this as you read the commentary statements on this story. So Jesus says, I've said that he's forgiven. You don't accept that. But if I heal him, based on your theology, that will be proof that his sin was forgiven. Right? You didn't want to enter into those kind of dialogues with Jesus. It didn't go so well. That's when palms got sweaty and people got nervous and didn't answer. Because it's like, you know, what? I don't know what to do here. Okay? So he says, I'm taking you at face value what you believe. And then a curious statement that you have to spend time in the text to notice. 
He says, in order that you may know, now what you would expect him to say is, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, has power on earth, to heal sick bodies, I'm going to heal him. That's not what he says. In order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your mat and walk. Son of man, you look that up in your Bible dictionary and you discover that is a messianic term. It is Jesus' favorite term for himself, favorite reference for himself. In other words, he is in essence saying, I am the Messiah. That's what he's saying with this. And as Messiah, I'm saying he's forgiven. So, in essence, what he says is, you say that I can't say you're forgiven. You're speaking words only God can speak. You're offering forgiveness only God can bestow. You're doing things that only God can do. And Jesus says, that's right. That's exactly right. But if he walks out of here, based on your theology, that's evidence that he has been forgiven, which is evidence that I am who I claim to be. Now, we've kind of hit the high points in that today. But let me point out the obvious. Every person in the crowd that day, with all due respect, people who were not educated, most of whom could not read, none of whom would take advanced theological education, they had just lived in their world. As they watched this unfolding, They know exactly what's happening. They understand exactly the implications of that. And they walk away saying, oh my goodness, we've seen incredible things today. He's not just an itinerant rabbi. He's the son of man, which your dictionary will tell you is drawn from the book of Daniel as a divine term. And you get that as you enter more and more into the world of the text. So to repeat again, as we collapse the distance between worlds, it becomes more natural to understand, just like it was with Vanessa from ancient Ephesus, just like it is with the people in the story because they understand that world. So here's a key principle, simple but true. The more your world and the world of the text are similar, the less interpretation you have to do and the more application you have to do. Just go and live it. The more your world and the world of the text are different, the more interpretation you have to do before you even get to application. In other words, if there is somebody in the text that's shaking in their sandals out of fear and a divine being says, don't be afraid, I'm with you. And you're shaking in your shoes in fear, you don't need a whole lot of interpretation. 
God is saying to you, don't be afraid. I'm with you. But if that text from Leviticus says, don't you boil a goat in its mother's milk, you say, I'm good. I hadn't done that. I'm living the world of the text. No, no, no. You need a lot of interpretation to figure out what that means and how I live it. So our goal this week is use the multiple blessings that we have today to enter more deeply into the world of Scripture that will result in collapsing the distance that will result in increased understanding. But as you do that, you always do it with prayer. So we're going to finish singing a prayer, singing a song that is a prayer. You remember the old song, Open My Eyes That I May See. I want to invite you to sing that together today. Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth Gracious God, that's our prayer. We want to understand what it meant so that we can understand what it means. We want to take that journey back so we can then take a journey forward. Lord, please open to us the treasures of your word. Help us to understand what it meant to those who lived it so we can understand how to live it with those who mean it today. Pour your spirit upon us. In the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.